0: tech support. Okay, cool. Um, Where are we at? So that was last year. The other thing, we wanted to build a culture of leadership. We did a couple of things there. This year, what is this year about? Well, it's another year and it's a big year of mission. And what we've been talking about for the last six years as we've been thinking about redeveloping this building is we didn't want this to be about us and our own personal comfort. We've built something to invite the community in. And so as a result, that's where we're really going this year. We're wanting to throw open the doors and see more people than ever come to know the life, love, and freedom Jesus offers. And the key part of that that I'm asking you to be involved in, there there are a variety of ways I'm asking you to be involved, but the key thing I'm asking you to do is to pray. Um, I think uh, Vine Church is known for a lot of things, uh, known for great community. Uh, People tell me we have great preaching here. Uh, people say the music's great, community's great, our morning teas are exceptional, all of these things that I hear. But I actually never heard someone say, you know what, uh, Vine Church, they're a praying church. Never heard that. And this year, if we are going to be involved in the mission Jesus called us to, we need to be praying. And as a result, we're going to have a time of open prayer at the end of this sermon, and really, I'm asking you to come and lead us in prayer, big prayers, that God might come and save Sydney, that God might come and save your friends, your family, that God might create a seriousness among the members of our church, that we'd take our sin seriously, that we'd seek hard after God, and that we'd be transformed by the gospel. So that's where we're going today. That's where we're kind of going this year, and, um, and, uh, but let's pray before I jump into the rest of the message. Heavenly Father, we ask for the fullness of your Holy Spirit now that we might experience a a work of revival, that we might have the intensification of his ministry among us, convicting us of sin, assuring us, of your love, that there'd be a seriousness for spiritual things, that worldliness would be cast out, that the lusts of the flesh, the eyes, would not be driving us, but a passion for your glory and a holiness of our lives and a seeking after the lost. Would you come and change us before we go out and to seek to save the city? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I've called this sermon Prayer and Revival. Now, if you went down to Cleveland Street, uh, there's an old Methodist church down there. I don't know whether you've seen it. If you go down Crown Street, turn right. It's just on the right as you head towards Newtown. There's an old uh, Methodist church called the Kirk, which was opened in 1878 and, uh, you know, it was a, a vibrant church for a while until the congregation gradually dwindled and fell into disuse by the 1960s. So it had about 100 years of Christian ministry meeting there, and, and then the church died and became a temporary home to squatters. In 1986, Gretel Pinninger, whose alter ego is the leather-clad dominatrix, Madame Lash, purchased the church. And she transformed the kirk into a gothic extravaganza. If you've ever walked past, you know what I mean. She installed um, stained glass windows, red drapery swords as door handles, and it was used for burlesque shows and sex parties. Uh, ACDC filmed a music video in the kirk in the um, 1970s or 80s uh, with... with, uh, one of the guys standing in the pulpit. Um, Interesting, you know, here you have a church alive for a generation or two, dies, and that's what happens. If you go over to Arthur Street in Surrey Hills, walk down Crown Street, turn right just after Messina, near the chicken shop on the left. You go down Arthur Street, there's an old Anglican church there, St. David's Anglican Church. It was built in 1874. We still own the rectory across the road. Some of you even live in it. Um, and uh, But, uh, you know, for many generations, had a Christian ministry meeting there until in 1976. Uh, church had declined so much. People had come over here and were meeting here that the Anglican church decided to demolish the church and redevelop it into this very ordinary look of the block of units, right? But the other claim to fame is across the road there's the St. David's Hall, that's it, next to the rectory, and claim to fame, St. David's Hall broadcast the very first moment on television in, when was that? Don't even know, but the announcer Bruce gingle spoke the famous words you know welcome to television and then it cut to st david's where a whole bunch of music videos and extravaganza type performances happened now we have in the history of surrey hills the first fruits of a society that is secularizing religion in general and christianity in particular are in sharp decline in Australia and it started in many ways in this area. When we started Vine Church in 2011 a non-Christian friend of mine said to me uh, she just finished her MBA so she's thinking about how businesses start and grow and she said to me Toby why are you planning a church in Surry Hills? There's no market for Christianity in Surry Hills doesn't make sense to go to Surrey Hills and plant a chance. She missed the point. We were after people who didn't see an interest in Jesus. But for many years, the cultural attitude towards Christianity in Surrey Hills, it runs from indifference to mockery and, for some, to angry hostility. Meanwhile in the rest of Sydney, churches don't face this kind of social pressure that we experience here. And many churches elsewhere multiply and grow to enormous sizes. I've seen that for friends who started churches at a similar time than we started uh, Vine Church in Surrey Hills, friends who started churches in Wollongong, Oren Park, Leppington, and they've grown considerably faster and larger than Vine Church. Hillsong, um, Hillsong started just down the road in Waterloo in 1977, But it wasn't until they moved out to Castle Hill that they experienced the extraordinary growth that they did. The decline in Christianity in the inner city, it's now spread, though, across the country. In 2011, the number of religious nuns, people who don't identify with any established religion, in the city of Sydney had grown to 52% of the population, while the population of professing Christians constituted just 28%, down from 38% 10 years earlier and 44% 20 years earlier. And so the question is, what should we expect as we look forward? It's Vision Sunday, looking forward. What should we expect to see? Should we expect to see church buildings repurposed or torn down? Is it inevitable that we will become a post-Christian, ex-Christian society? Or is it possible that the church in our day could experience a revival, a renewal, and a great, another great awakening? Revival is on the lips of Christians these days, because I'm not sure whether you know, but there recently was a spirit, what people are calling a spiritual awakening in the small town Uh, of Wilmore in America at the University of Asbury. Uh, An ordinary chapel service turned into an ongoing service of singing and Bible teaching. People were confessing their sin, weeping over their hearts and rejoicing in their salvation. They were seeking God. And for two weeks, it went on and on, all night, It's now garnered the attention from all over the country and the world and sparked similar stirrings of spiritual intensity in other colleges and other universities. Wilmore has a population of 6,000 people. The university has 1,400 people enrolled in it, but something like 50,000 people came to visit for the Revival. Tim Keller just recently, I think in um, February this year, he wrote an article for, the, for not uh, an article, not for Christianity Today, not for Gospel Coalition, but f- of all places for the Atlantic, which was titled "American Christianity is Due for a Revival." Our society is secularizing, and Christianity seems to be in long-term decline, but renewal is possible. Now, I don't know whether you realize it, but our mission and vision, which our kids so beautifully kind of told us in that video, uh, it really is about revival. Our mission is to connect a 1,000 people to the life, love, and freedom Jesus offers. This church has never seen that many people in it. Uh, It's impossible for that to happen without an unusual work of the Holy Spirit in our midst. We dream of seeing more people in church worshipping Jesus on a Sunday than at the Beresford Hotel, drinking and partying on a Saturday night. I mean, uh, to be honest, I doubt our own vision sometimes. (laughs) Can we really achieve that? No, we can't. But what we're actually praying for as a church is a mighty move of the Holy Spirit in our city that people would be more interested in the Bible, the Word of God, than in drinking with friends. That they'd be more interested in seeking after God and praying than they would be than going to the pub on a Saturday night. That's what we're asking for. For church to have more people in it than the local, that would be unusual. And what our whole vision is built around is this idea of revival. Now, what is a revival? I'll give you two definitions of revival. The first definition is uh, a revival is a season of extremely vigorous evangelistic activity. And so it's not surprising to sometimes see churches advertise a revival Revival happening here, July 31 to August 5, right? which kind of defeats the point. If if a revival is about what God does in an extraordinary way, how can you plan for it? You can't plan for it. It happens without planning for it. But some people use it in that kind of way. Uh, Second definition of revival is what might be called the Pentecostal approach, which is A revival is an experience of the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Spirit. Tongues, healing, miracles, prophecy, and that kind of thing. So that's a second definition. But the definition I've arrived at as I've kind of read church history and done some study on this, uh, isn't about uh, kind of the extraordinary work of the Holy Spirit, but rather the intensification of the work of the Holy Spirit. So here's Tim Keller's definition Revival is an intensification of the normal operations of the Holy Spirit. See, what does the Holy Spirit do normally? He convicts you of sin. He gives you an awareness of God's love. He makes you take God seriously. He gives you a heart for the lost, and you go out testifying to Jesus. And what a revival is, is an intensification of that that people are very much mourning over their sins, that very much they're rejoicing in their salvation and very much they have boldness to share the gospel with others. So notice biblical revival, it's not just something human beings done, it is the work of the Spirit of God. And it's not mainly the extraordinary operation of the Holy Spirit, uh, healings, miracles, words of prophecy, tongues but rather it's just the intensification of what he normally does. When you see someone become a Christian, there you have a mini revival. But what we're talking about when we're talking about a revival is that on mass scale... And so what does the Holy Spirit normally do? He convicts of sin, converts unbelievers, gives the assurance of God's love, and he transforms us to be more like Jesus. Here's another definition of revival by Kevin DeYoung. He says, True revival is a sovereign, that is, it's God's work, swift, comes on unexpectedly, extraordinary work of God, whereby he... Here's what happens. Saves sinners and breathes new life into people. And here's Don Carson's definition, revivals are movements of the Spirit of God in which God's power is much more than usually displayed in conversion, transformation of life, in a deep and reverent sense of the holiness and goodness of God. And that is what we're praying for. And revivals, they can be widespread, affecting whole region or country, or they can be more narrow in scope influencing just one congregation or even just a part of a congregation. It can be fairly gentle or it can be sensational, but all all revivals are seasons in which the ordinary operation of the Spirit of God is intensified. It's put on steroids. You feel as though God has moved here. And in a revival, three things tend to happen. And I'm pulling this from Tim Keller. He says three things happen. Firstly, nominal Christians get converted, sleepy Christians wake up, and non-Christians get saved. So nominal Christians get converted. Uh, Very often, there are many, often in churches, there are many people who come along every Sunday and they think they're Christians, they're baptised, they serve at church, they may even lead community group or serve on parish council. But when revival breaks out, a lot of them will come forward and say, I thought I was a Christian, uh, and now I know I never was. You know, I ha- They may say, I had this secret life where I was living this way, and you know, I said one thing, but this is actually what was going on in my life. Or it may actually just be a little bit normal. They may say, you know what, I always believed Jesus died for me, but it didn't make any sense. I didn't, it didn't make any difference in my life. I never really understood what it meant to be saved by God's grace. That God, I always yeah—I you know, knew God saved me, but I kind of did think that if I was doing good as a Christian, God was happy. If I was doing bad, I was in danger of going to hell. I, I never really had a sense of joy in it. It was all a sense of duty. God never really seemed real to me. I, I, now I realise I'd never actually given my life to Christ and turned from my sins. During times of revival, the Holy Spirit does that. And normal Christians who are in church week in, week out, for whom God is not real, they kind of believe it, but it's not real, they come alive and they're converted. Secondly, sleepy Christians wake up where there's an intensification of the work of the Holy Spirit in people's lives. He brings deep repentance and the assurance of God's love. And often... Christians don't experience both of those things nearly to the degree that they ought. Deep repentance and an awareness of God's love, that they're serious about sin in their life. They mourn over it. And also, they experience the depth of God's love that it profoundly brings them a great joy. There's a beautiful verse in Romans 8, verse 16. It's a revival verse. And it talks about the work of the Spirit. So what's the normal operation of the Spirit? The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. Now, what does that mean? Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great English preacher, he used an illustration that he got from someone else uh, that went like this. Imagine you're walking down the street and you see a father and a son and... um, and they're close. It's obvious that they love one another. But at one point, the father picks up his son, gives him a big hug, and he tells him, son, I love you. And the son says back, I love you too, dad. And then after that, the father puts the son down because you can't carry your son around like that all day, every day. And they continue walking down the street. And Here's the point Martin Lloyd Jones makes. He says, objectively, the son and the father, they were legally son and father. But when the boy was in the father's arms, he wasn't legally any more the son of the father than he was before. He wasn't any more objectively loved by the father any more than he was before that hug but he was experiencing an intensification of his father's love in that moment. He was experiencing his sonship. And Lloyd-Jones says that when the Bible says the spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God, what it's talking about is the spirit gives us, yes, we know we're children of God, but the spirit is pulled into our hearts so that we might experience the joy of the assurance of being loved by god yeah i know i'm a child of god i believe the bible yeah i believe jesus died for me i've put my faith in him but now i know you know you, you know there's a difference between knowing and really knowing and when the spirit bears witness with our spirit the spirit comes inside of us he says hey it's true it's really really true And in the midst of a revival, this is what happens to everyone. There's a profound awareness and assurance of God's love. And you read the reports of the Asbury Revival or any of the revivals, and people don't just weep over their sin. They weep over a new experience of God's love. And when that happens, sleepy Christians who've really just been sleepwalking through life get woken up And they start testifying to what God has done. And they start showing up to community group with their Bibles open and they're hungry to read and they come with prayer points about big things, not just, oh, this is happening at work, but big things going on in their lives. And they start serving. They start talking about Jesus in public. Why? Because they've got this profound experience of the love of God. They wake up. That's the second thing. And then the third thing that happens in a revival is that non-Christians get saved. Because when you have this thing happening, nominal Christians get converted, sleepy Christians wake up. What ends up happening is that the church becomes very attractive. It becomes a powerful place where nominal Christians and sleepy Christians actually begin to reach out to their neighbours in a way they weren't doing before. And instead there was just moralistic judgmentalism in the church because the dominant paradigm is, yeah, I know I'm saved by grace, but really I think God's pretty lucky to have me. But in the middle of revival, there's this profound sense of I'm not worthy. And yet God has loved me this much. And that impacts the way they treat others. There's no smug superiority And sometimes it's because people start to see that change that's occurred in the lives of Christians that they themselves become curious and asked to come to church. And at other times it's because they're brought along to church by emboldened Christians who no longer fear people knowing they follow Jesus. Uh, J. Edwin Orr, he said, In times of evangelism, Christians seek the lost. But in times of revival, the lost come chasing the Lord. Non-Christians get saved. So that's what happens in revival. Now, if you were to ask, well, what are the marks of revival? You know, what are the things that, you know, if we saw this happening, what, what are the marks? What happens? And uh, I want to talk about five marks of a revival. These are the essential things that you'd have in a revival. The first one is the gospel is recovered, it's believed and it's communicated in a new, vital and vivid way. Some people talk about New York experiencing a revival when Tim Keller rocked up in the 1980s. And it's interesting, the message Tim Keller brought to a moralistic, fairly judgmental Christian culture in the 1980s was a message of grace. If you go back to John Whitfield during the Great Awakening of England and America, the message he preached was a message of grace. Billy Graham, when he showed up in Sydney, came to moralistic Sydney. And he said, you've misunderstood the gospel. It's not about being good, it's about being saved. And what you have in all revival, the gospel is recovered, and the two parts of the gospel are recovered. Uh, One is that yes, God loves you, but the other is that God is holy. And often we kind of, you have the churches that are big on God's love and never talk about God's holiness, and you have the churches that are big on God's holiness never talk about God's love, but in revival, both of those things go together. And the result is, because God's holy, there's a profound seriousness and repentance. We'll get to that in a second. But because he's love... There's this profound assurance, and both of those things come together as the gospel is recovered. Second theological mark is genuine repentance. This is what distinguishes real revival from just waves of fanaticism. In the history of revivals, there can be this kind of emotional frothiness, which often goes under the name revival, great spiritual excitement. But really, they're just the product of emotional manipulation. And actually, one of the things you can notice about the Asbury revival in America is the production quality was terrible. Sometimes just one guy with a guitar singing pretty, pretty poorly on stage, but the whole church was singing loudly, violently, because it doesn't matter about the production quality. And so there's in, sometimes you have spiritual excitement, but that's not the sign, the true sign, of rev- revival is repentance, really one of the distinguishing marks. In the 18th and 19th century revivals, there was you know, often a lot of excitement, but many times in revivals there was a lot of awe and a lot of silence. They're not always noisy because you know, if, you're, if you've ever been a public speaker, you know that in some ways, you know that if you're giving a talk or if you're preaching the gospel, the best and most decisive way that you know that something's happening in the room is the room goes silent. You know, that's the moment as a preacher, you're like, okay, this is sinking into people. And in some ways, revivals are times when the whole church gets silent for several years. People stop fighting, they stop boasting, and they're humbled under the mighty hand of God. Martin Lloyd Jones, speaking about revival, says, Present-day religion far too often soothes the conscience instead of awakening it, and it produces a sense of self-satisfaction and eternal safety rather than a sense of our unworthiness and the likelihood of our eternal damnation. Revivals are moments when we come to terms with the seriousness of our sin and the reality of judgment and the need for a saviour. J.I. Packer, the great theologian, said, He that has learned to feel his sin and to trust Christ as Savior has learned the two hardest and greatest lessons in Christianity. You know, in the um in the beginning of the 20th century, 1905 to 1910, one of the great revivals that happened in the world was happened in the North Korean city of Pyongyang uh, in nineteen ninety. 1900, sorry, 1% of the population of Korea was Christian. By 1970, 18% of the population of South Korea was Christian, and by 2000, 31% of the population was Christian. By 2006, South Korea was sending out more missionaries than any other country in the world except for the United States. 100 years or 120 years ago now, Korea just 1% Christian and it grew to 30%. And one of the keys to the revival that happened there was repentance was a very, very, very big part of it. There were towns in Korea where there were Chinese people living there, and Chinese people were often very successful in business, and they were quite wealthy. And, um, and when the revival hit, many Korean Christians came, uh, they woke up, and they woke up to a conviction of sin... And they came back to their Chinese neighbours confessing the fact that they'd robbed them or stolen from them or shoplifted or cheated them on a business deal. Profound sense of revival. The stories we're hearing out of Asbury, are people at university, hey, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend. They're confessing this publicly to people. Repentance, second sign of revival. Third sign is a sense, an overwhelming sense of God's presence and as a result because that happens people stay in church for hours and hours Uh, i get crucified if i preach for 50 minutes but in the time of revival that would be too short much too short people stay up all night singing praising studying the bible together praying for one another and that's because you go in and you have a very visible sense that god is here You know, there's a Bible verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 14. I love this verse. This is what we're after. It says, so the whole church comes, the Apostle Paul says, so if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're all out of your mind? So that's why we don't do speaking in tongues in church, because unbelievers think that doesn't make sense. But if an unbeliever, an inquirer, comes in while everyone is prophesying, and I take prophecy to mean testimony to the uh, to what Jesus has done for us. Um, but if everyone is prophesying, testifying about the goodness of Jesus, they're all convicted of they, the the outsider will be convicted of sin, and they're brought under the judgment by all as the secrets of their own hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. God is truly here. Isn't that, that, what is that? That's a sense of God's presence. And it comes when the church is stirred up by what Jesus, and they're, they're talking, not just the preacher talking, but the members of the church prophesying, declaring the wonders of God to one another. And when the church is stirred up talking about that and the outsider comes in, what happens? The unbeliever comes in and says, wow, there's this sense of God. God really is here. And that's what happens in revival. The fourth sign is church growth. There's always church growth because unbelievers are always brought to faith in Jesus. You can have church growth without revival, but you can't have revival without without some church growth because the Holy Spirit comes and what's He on about? Saving people. And finally you have the fifth mark, extraordinary prayer. Extraordinary prayer means prayer beyond the ordinary prayer. Not just for my needs, but prayer for the kingdom and for the coming of the kingdom. Not merely just focused on individual needs, but for the power of the gospel and the power of God and the presence of God to be made manifest And it has an inward dimension and an outward dimension. The inward dimension is asking for God to prick our consciences, that we might confess our sins, asking for God to humble us, that we might know him better. And the outward dimension is asking for compassion and zeal and creativity to go and reach the lost and see the church flourish and grow with new converts. So there's extraordinary prayer. Not just, oh, you know, this is what's happening in my life. I'm looking to buy a new car, and I'm not sure whether I'm going to buy this one and this one. Could you ask God for some wisdom about this? You can pray about that. That's okay. But when the church wakes up, they start praying about things much, much, much more important than that, and that's the fifth mark of revival. Now, this has been a weird sermon, hasn't it? I haven't really touched on many texts in the Bible um, and, uh, and to conclude with, uh, well, it's not really, it's quite a long conclusion. As I've, as I've been reflecting on um, this this week, I've just been reading stories from church history. And I've been so encouraged by them. And I just want to, as we, as you know, give me another 10 minutes. I just want to tell you some wonderful stories of the revivaling work of the Spirit of God in the history of the church. Are you interested in that? Okay. Uh, the American Presbyterian minister... And this is riffing off the last point, Extraordinary Prayer. The American Presbyterian Minister A.T. Pearson once said, there has never been a spiritual awakening or revival in any country that did not begin in united prayer. And I want to talk about that now. So in the the 1920s, there was a great crisis. Look at this guy, Cotton Mather. What a hairdo, right? Right. Uh, He lived in the early part of the, I always mix up the centuries, around about 1720. The the church in America uh, was becoming spiritually dead, especially in New England. And uh, what happened in America, people moved from England to settle in America. And if you know anything about American history, they were the pilgrims. They came to build a Christian nation. And they were very optimistic. They were ardent and vibrant and solid Christians. But a generation later, their kids did not follow Jesus. And most people recognize the reason for that is that the pilgrims came and they enjoyed incredible religious freedom. But, but as they lived in America, they were so prosperous that they stopped relying on God. Wealth brought a complacency Toward God, and the next generation did not believe. In the 1920s, um, Cotton Mather, a great New England congregational minister, in the last year and a half of his life, organized prayer cells to pray for a mighty visitation of God. He himself got up every day and spent all day for the last 400 and some days of his life praying for the presence of God. He died in 1727. And in 1727, a revival broke out. It broke out in New Brunswick, New Jersey. And here's what is interesting. At the same time in 1727, a group of Moravians, led by a guy called Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. what a name! These guys have the best names. He started a hundred-year prayer meeting. They set aside a place in which they were going to pray for a mighty work of God in the world, and they decided that at least one person would always be in that room praying uh, so that the prayer meeting would never stop. And it went from 1727 into the 1820s, a 100-year prayer meeting, and it started in 1727. And that's the year revival broke out. And what happened on both sides of the Atlantic, both in uh, Britain and Europe and in America, there was such an extraordinary outpouring of the Spirit of God, tremendous movement that historians still can't figure it out. Literally crowds, thousands upon thousands of people showed up who previously had no interest in Christianity. They began to flock to church. They packed out church to listen to the Word of God preached. And many, many were converted in droves. And we like to think, well, back then everyone kind of was Christian. everyone was religious. But no, actually, today in America, 40, 50 percent of the population go to church, but back then in 1800, something like 10 percent of Americans went to church. We forget the history. George Whitfield, an Anglican minister from England, was invited to come to America to preach, and there he discovered dead churches. And the reason he said they were dead was, this is, this is his diagnosis of the churches there. He said the generality of preachers in America talk of an unknown, unfelt Christ. And the reason why the churches have been so dead is because dead men preach in them. And George Whitefield was anything but a dead preacher. He began preaching in Philadelphia at once and thousands. Flocked to hear him. The population of Philadelphia at the time didn't exceed 12,000 people and yet he was regularly speaking to audiences of six to 8,000. He embarked on a two-year preaching itinerary at just the age of 25 years of old and his audience swelled to 20,000 and then 30,000 uh, the idea that one man without amplification could speak in the open air to a crowd of 30,000 people was kind of doubted. But Benjamin Franklin, the president of America, did a careful study on it. And he, 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 he kind of walked around, uh, estimated that Whitfield could be heard clearly by up to 30,000 people at one time. And he wrote in his journal, uh, Benjamin Franklin, not a Christian, Became a friend of Whitfield's, but never became a Christian. And this is what he wrote in his journal. From being thoughtless and indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world were growing religious so that one could not walk through Philadelphia in the evening without hearing psalms sung in different families of every street. Isn't that what you would love to hear? That in Sydney, people indifferent to God would suddenly be roused to take an interest. In 1855, London churches were dead and in a lot of trouble. And there was a great Baptist church called New Park Street Chapel that seated 1,500 people in London, but only 150 people or so were ever there. It was a typical huge, big city church with very little people inside it. And in 1855, a 19-year-old man got up and started preaching in that church, Charles Spurgeon. He'd never even finished high school, and he led lots of big people to start praying for a visitation of God. There was always, whenever he preached, there was a group in a room over there praying for him. Often they never heard him preach because they were the ones praying for him as he preached. Uh, There were 150 people or less when he got there. One year later, 3,000 people were coming and he baptized 300 people who'd got converted. Had to knock the church building down and while they were rebuilding it, they moved to the Surrey music hall that seated 10,000 people. And whenever he was there, 10,000 people showed up. At one point, they went to something called the Crystal Palace, which seated 27,000 people. And sure enough, 20,000 people Twenty-seven thousand people showed up. In the year 1859, revival broke out across the world, and uh, not only did Spurgeon see hundreds and thousands of people get baptized and come into church, it happened all over the world. In 1857, in 1857, a man by the name of Jeremiah Lampfear. Uh, started a prayer meeting in the upper room of the Dutch Reformed Church in Manhattan. He advertised the prayer meeting, uh, and uh, only six people rocked up the first week. But the following week, they were 14, and then 23, and then they decided to meet every day for prayer. By late winter, they were filling the Dutch Reformed Church, then the Methodist Church, then Trinity Episcopal Church. In February and March of 1858, Uh, A year later, every church and public hall in downtown New York was filled. There was a famous editor of a newspaper that day, and he sent one of these young guys to go around to all the churches and try and count how many people were meeting for prayer in New York City at lunchtime. And in one hour, all he could get to was 12 meetings where he counted 6,100 men and women praying. Then the landslide of prayer began, which overflowed to churches. Churches were having prayer nights every evening and people started to get converted. 10,000 people converted in a week in New York City alone. And the revival spread to New England. The Baptists, middle of winter, people getting converted. They got to baptise people. So many people had to get baptised that they went down to the river, cut a big hole in the ice and baptised people through the ice into the cold water. In Chicago, there was a young shoe salesman who went to the Sunday school teacher, essentially went to Meg Stevens, right, and said to Meg, hey, can I teach Sunday school? Can I teach in kids' church? And the Sunday school leader said, I'm sorry, young man, I've got 16 teachers too many. But I'll put you on the waiting list. I mean, when was there a day that at Church we had a waiting list for people joining kids' church team leadership? Anyway, he joined the waiting list. He said, I don't want to wait. I want to do something now. And so the guy said, well, start your own class. He goes, how do I start my own class? He said, get some boys off the street, but don't bring them here. Take them out into the country, and after a month you'll have them under control, and then bring them here, and that'll be your class. So he took them to Lake Michigan. He taught them Bible verses and did Bible games with them, and finally he brought them back to Plymouth Congregational Church, and his name was Dwight Moody, one of the great leaders of the church in the 19th century. More than a million people were converted to God in just one year out of a population of 30 million. The, the revival, I've already spoken about the Pyongyang revival in, um, in, uh, in Korea. The revival spread around the world. In 1905, there was a revival that happened in, um, in Illawarra, in our, own, uh, in our own city. Where are we? Uh, Ebenezer Vickery, a Methodist minister from Waverley, financed and organised an evangelistic campaign in New South Wales. 25,000 people were converted. And they uh, saw profound results in a coal mining village out in Illawarra. Uh, It was on the side of Mount Kira, and uh, the miners had pit ponies, ponies that would carry the carts in and out of the mines. And when the men got converted, their language cleaned up. They stopped swearing at their ponies and their ponies stopped doing what they would tell them to do because they were used to F this, F that. The ponies couldn't understand. So there was a slowdown at the mines. Uh, at a similar time, I'm going to go back to this remarkable man, Evan Roberts. Uh, he was a, a coal miner in Wales at the age of 26. And he became a Christian and was so moved by the gospel that he went, he was studying at university. And uh, to become a minister, and he said to his, the principal at his uh, Bible college, he said, hey, I can't concentrate on my studies. I keep hearing a voice that tells me that I must go home to speak to the young people in my home church. Principal Phillips, is that the voice of the devil or the voice of the spirit? And the principal answered, the devil never gives orders like that. You have a week off. And so he went back to his home in Wales, announced to the pastor, hey, I've come to preach. Never preached before in his life. The pastor wasn't at all convinced. And he says, how about you speaking at the prayer meeting on Monday night? And the pastor didn't even let him speak at the prayer meeting. Instead, he got up and he said... Uh, Evan Roberts feels like he's got a message for us. If you want to stay around after the prayer meeting and wait, he'll address you. Fourteen people stayed around for his message. And this is the message he gave them. He said, I have a message for you from God. You must confess any known sin to God and put any wrong done to man right. Second, you must put away any doubtful habit. Third, you must obey the Spirit promptly Finally, you must confess your faith in Christ publicly. At the end of the meeting, all 14 responded. The pastor who was there was so pleased, he asked him to speak every night that week. And finally, a revival hit Wales, spread all across Wales. Same kind of thing happened with the Welsh miners. Their ponies stopped understanding what was going on. There was a massive social impact uh crime decreased uh, no robberies no burglaries no rapes no murders police didn't have a job to do uh, and they had to meet together what are we going to do with all of these unemployed policemen the revival swept wales drunkenness was cut in half taverns went bankrupt uh it was an incredible move of god done the Fullerton Street, done the Pyongyang, Illawarra, and then finally we come, this will be the last one, to the Billy Graham Crusades in Sydney and Melbourne. In 1959, Billy Graham was invited to Australia by the Sydney Anglican Archbishop Howard Mole for a series of evangelistic crusades. And it was an extraordinary moment when churches across Australia worked together. Do you know how hard it is to get churches to work together? But they came together. Uh, there were volunteers for support roles, driving buses. There were choirs of thousands of people. A whole group of counsellors were trained. How, you know? Once someone makes a decision to follow Christ, who's going to talk to them? Eight to nine thousand counsellors were trained in Sydney. The churches prepared their local area by visiting the homes of everyone there. The Sydney Morning Herald reported that at least 300,000 of the 500,000 homes in Sydney at the time were visited. Prayer was mobilised in incredible numbers in homes and large gatherings. In the city there was a prayer meeting that had 5,000 people at it. By April 1959 there were 40,000 people praying for Billy Graham's visit and then he came. The nineteen fifty 9 Billy Graham crusade in Melbourne. It started in a whole bunch of smaller buildings, then the My Music Bowl, but because of the loud ch- crowds, it was decided to move the final crusade to the MCG. No one would have predicted how many people would come, and, uh, and 143,000 people attended the last Billy Graham in Melbourne, the la- still making it the largest gathering of people in the MCG. I was reading an article by a Melbourne guy a couple of weeks ago, and this is what he says, I love this surprising fact about my city. Melbourne, who is so proud of its prosperity, Melbourne who worships sport, Melbourne who is clambering to make herself one of the world's most progressive and secular cities in our most loved space, the record highest attendance is for an evangelistic sermon. Billy Graham came and opened the Bible and preached the good news of Jesus in the kindness of God, hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people put their trust in him. In Sydney, because our cricket ground's not as big, there was two venues side by side, cricket ground and the show grounds, and there were estimated to be 150,000 people in both those places. Sydney had a population at the time of just 2 million 150 people showed up for this. Uh, and how did it begin? It began with a concert of prayer. What is the application of today? Yes, Sydney is declining. You know, Vine Church is growing in a place, city of Sydney, it's on the forefront of secularization. But over the last 12 years, we're seeing the Lord add to our number data. This is not a revival. This is the ordinary work of God. It's not intensified, slowly but slow. But what do we long for? We long for a mighty work of the Spirit of God in our day, don't you? So the application is this. God says to Solomon after building the temple, he says, "'If my people who are called by my name "'will humble themselves and pray and seek my face "'and turn from their wicked ways,' Then I will hear them from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. This year, what I'm asking you to do, it's a year of mission, but the key thing I'm asking you is to pray. And I've set the target pretty easy. Would you carve out five minutes once every week to pray for three people in your life, that the reviving work of the Spirit of God might come into their lives and bring them to faith. Would you write their names out on this? Put it in a prominent place in in your life so that you remember to pray. Imagine if the 330 so people in our church were praying for three people every week for an entire year. That's a 1,000 people we would be praying for every single week that God would come and say, what might the Lord do with those prayers? Let me pray right now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the encouragement of seeing your extraordinary work in history. We thank you for the work you have done in our own lives and the work you've done in our church, but we long for more. Come by your Spirit now. Fill us with the assurance of your grace. Prick our consciences with the seriousness of our sin. Make us long for holiness. Help us to seek you and make us bold in evangelism. And as we are revived, may you bring many, many people to the Lord Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. We are going to have a moment of open prayer now.